You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Good morning, Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Isn't it a stunning day today? Oh, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it, is, it is truly awesome. It is. And the studio is freezing. So everyone listening, we are sacrificing <laughs> our sun for you. It's, it's, I, I think it's because of the soundproofing there. It's actually quite cold. Yeah. If we don't pump air in. It is. It is. But yeah. worth it. And humans actually don't need much oxygen. So I think as long as you... <laughs> Open the door. Should get your hand in. up my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Kramer, how are you? Good. And I'd just like to say hi to all the professional geneticists out there. Not as you'd think, but I went to a <laughs> plant breeding fair yesterday. Oh. These, if you breed plants, if you breed animals, you are a professional geneticist. Every time you breed them, you're mixing their genes around, and we've been doing mm. it for thousands of years. So you guys are experts in producing all these new varieties of plants and animals. So, so what, what did you go for? Was it to, do you want to buy plants? I wanted or? to buy, yeah, yeah. I wanted to browse. You I know, thought you were diversifying your research. <laughs> <laughs> no, I could do, but I, you know, I was picking up some interesting dahlias and, ah. uh, and all, all of the sorts of things. It was in an open garden near Mount Macedon, but it was just, just amazing. Mm. So that sort of stuff, yeah. I think the, the bit that people freak out about is when you take an ostrich gene and you put it in a potato. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that's the bit. There's of, a joke in there somewhere. Uh, yeah. he's, he's I'm so sorry. I, 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 just, I just grabbed the two most obscene sort of things I could think of and chucked them together. You could um, maybe brew a long neck beer from that. <laughs> you, you could actually like that. That's a, that's a very good thought. <laughs> we better dive into some science, folks. We've got a couple of good guests in the studio today who are Vesky Fellows. We'll talk all about that in a little bit, but let's catch up with some science news. Dr. Lauren. Well, this week's been one. It's one of my favourite weeks in the scientific year. It is the announcement of the Ig Nobel uh, Prizes. Yeah. I like. I hang out for this every, every year. single year. I, I love know. it. I love it. So, I'm like, yeah, what? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. that, oh right, whatever. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> now, I love them because the idea with the Ig Nobel Prizes is that they're trying to get you to laugh and then think about science. So basically they're awarding scientific projects from around the world which just sound absolutely bizarre but actually, and worthless, and worthless but yeah. actually have mm. really good science mm. behind them. Haven't we learned that uh, that no science is worthless exactly. one day? Things that we think are worthless like, you know, travelling to different, uh, looking at distant galaxies, yeah. they, they have, they, totally they have uh, spin-offs for for human health and well-being. Mm. Exactly, exactly. But I do. Like, I know. I wrote a couple of papers. I'm pretty sure they're worthless. <laughs> <laughs> well, these ones definitely are not worthless. So uh, the, okay. chem- the chemistry prize. I have to start with the chemistry prize because it was won by some Australians. Uh, so Callum Ormond and Colin Raston in Australia, who were part of an international group that actually looked at developing um, a, a technique, and they've called it the unboil an egg machine. Oh yeah. To get the prize, pretty much. You know, like mm. it now fits in for the Ig Nobel. But it's actually an incredibly uh, uh, clever technique. Now, when you think about proteins, eggs are basically protein, which is hence the where, where it's heading. But proteins are used, obviously, for all sorts of things, for developing uh, different medicines, for making cheese, for example. And what you'd need to do to develop these things is actually change the structure of the proteins. Now, for example, when you do eggs, when you actually cook an egg, you change the structure of the protein. So the proteins uh, start off by being sort of clumped up. When you heat them, they unclump and then they join bonds with the surrounding proteins. And that's why your egg goes white and and not transparent. Mm. If you anything, can't uncook an egg, I was typically. Gonna, exactly. That's, exactly. What we're t- that's what we're told in school. That's it, exactly. Mm. So we never have been able to before. And if you're anything like me, I always overcook eggs and they go rubbery. And that's because you've made too many protein bonds and it's it's gone. 
This particular technique um, has you're, actually... You're such a skilled scientist, you can't even cook oh, an egg. Oh, no, no, see, that's, that's why I have my husband. <laughs> like, you timer, can do that. <laughs> yeah, egg so, timer? Egg, yeah, egg well, timer, really? too hard, too hard. That's for boiling them, though, I suppose. I mean, are you talking fried or poached or boiled? Poached in this particular... I'm, I'm, I'm you can't even do a poached. Oh, I'm terrible at poached. <laughs> Jeez, I'm going to teach you the glad wrap poach technique. Oh, okay, done. Very Ooh. easy. Ooh, yeah, a little bit of oil glad wrap, well. yeah. <laughs> or cling wrap. I mean, I'm sure I'm using a brand name there. You know the stuff, yes. it's a it's yeah. a long chain polymer, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, that stuff. Um, wow. Yeah, that stuff. <laughs> but anyway, so the actual, this particular technique, he's, he's pretty much able to do that. So it's able to take that overcooked poached egg and take it back in the process. Wow. And the reason this is really important is mm. if you think about using proteins for industry, if you go too far down the thing, then you have to throw that out. And yep. this is apparently you know, a billion dollar industry each year where they're losing proteins because they're too far processed. So it's a really uh, clever, clever technique. And so they um, have obviously won the prize for this. Mm. So does that mean in the future, in the not-so-distant future, mm. restaurants, you know, if someone sends back their egg or even their overcooked steak, then the, the, the kitchen can uncook it. And cook it, yeah, extent. possibly, possibly. Cool. <laughs> I think they're probably talking about very simple proteins, though, aren't they? I mean, the sort of stuff we're talking about in eggs is yes. highly complicated. So, But the, the principle of, of actually, you know, reversing those bonds. Yeah. Because you know, normally you, know, you have this scenario of entropy where, you know, things tend to get more disordered if you add heat. Exactly. to the situation, which is what we're talking about. Yep. But if there's a way to actually remove that disorder, I yeah. mean, that's that's actually... That's quite profound. That's it. And, mm. and look, it is. I mean, I should should actually state here, it's not the first time that they've done this. There are techniques mm. to un, un, mm. undo this excess protein bonding, uh, but they take a long time. So they've been taking, you know, multiple days and, and huge amounts of money and, and time, whereas this is you know, up to 10 times faster and a lot cheaper and more efficient. So it is a, a really great thing. Mm. Ignoble. Ignoble. So see, the Ignobles have good good reason. <laughs> is that the only one you're going to talk about? Can I talk one really yeah, quick yeah, one? Yeah, go one more. One really yeah. quick one. Because this, this, I mean, this guy had to get an award. So the physical Physiology Award went to a guy uh, called Justin Schmidt, who actually um, created a, a stinging pain index himself by stinging himself with 21 different did, types of venom. Did we cover this once or on, different, uh, on different body sites or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the, okay. the, the prize was actually split between... As you do. Yeah, yeah, totally. The, the, the prize this year was split between the guy that, that did the uh, pain index by 21 oh, okay. different types of venom, but also was awarded to the guy who stung himself with honeybees in 25 different locations. Ooh. Oh. To work out which was the most painful. <laughs> I've got no idea of what that would be. And, and <laughs> if ever, yeah, the one you were thinking of Actually, is wrong. correct. Oh, right. So okay. on, the, on yeah. the chin, really? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Well, actually, the most painful part actually is your nostril, yeah. inside your uh, nostril, yeah. 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 And the, so, that's, oh, so that got a nine nose. out of ten on the pain index scale. Uh, the least painful spot, if you have to get stung by a bee, get it to aim for your skull. The skull's really? only a two. Oh, cool. Mm. Well, I I thought the butt was up there. But... Yeah, no. Mm. Okay. But um, again, the <laughs> but the science behind this, again, is really trying to look at, you know, how how, how body responds to pain in different regions. And the theories from like really come about whether the thickness of the skin is the main reason that some stings hurt more or whether it's to do with nerve distribution. Yeah. So they basically said both. Fascinating science. Exactly. Fascinating. I love them. Dr. Kramer? Well, I want to take you back to 1980. Um, so probably Shane and I are the only people here that, that lived in <laughs> and watched, oh, no, I and watched, Dr. watched no? Watch no, sorry, 83. 83, yeah, yeah. And, watch, and watch movies as, as, <laughs> yeah, yeah. as children in yeah. 1980. I'm talking about Star Wars, mm. episode four, yep. subtitled 
the Empire Strikes Back. No, no, no. Oh, was, sorry. Uh, uh, a, a, a New, new Hope. hope. A new oh, hope. No. You were like, no, 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 I got it wrong. No, no, it, wasn't, it was 76, 77 for right. A New Hope. Uh, oh, okay. Sorry, you yeah, tricked right. me there with no, the year. Right. Anyway. Yes, <laughs> actually, I think you're right. I think we never need an adjudicator, Liv. Um, so, the Star, the Star Wars trilogy. Actually, I think it was in episode... Mm. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> it was revealed in the, in the, in the best three um, um, so far, anyway. It's not finished yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A part of the, um, the Star Wars series that uh, Luke was Luke Skywalker was Princess Leia's twin sister. So he did have an odd look at his, you know, his face in the first film after she kissed him. Yes, mm. I know. See, like, what she, the hell maybe was he that? knew it inside. No, he didn't. He enjoyed it. And that was that was just wrong. <laughs> um, that was in Return of the Jedi. They were fraternal. Yes, I think you have. For which all the listeners probably, out there who are big fans, which is probably 1980. Uh, 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 a little which, bit later than that. No, all right, a little bit later than that. Yeah. Well, uh, the news reports got it wrong then. Um, so. Um, and you would assume at the same age, but a group, maybe this should be in next year's Ig Nobels. A group of mm. physicists got together and said, are they actually the real age? Um, what about the relative velocity time dilation, which mm. I wasn't familiar with, but mm. I kind of, it's like, um, it's all about relativity yeah. and time travels differently when you're near the speed of light. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... Basically, because of this relative velocity time dilation, you bend space-time. The different journeys through space, as tracked through the various episodes, would change how fast that they're aging. So... um, Really, they, this was come from the University of Leicester, and they calculated based on the twins' journeys to Cloud City. Leia travels from the neighbouring system of An, oh, Ancote, or An, or Anuat and arrives at Cloud City in around 6.72 hours, while Luke travels from the much more distant planet Dagobah. 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 <laughs> which takes about a week. And, basically, uh, and they said, oh, they, 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 they looked up the specs of the Millennium Falcon and X-Wing fighters, which is ultra cool. Um, and um, they worked out that Leia's journey yields a time dilation of 62.6 days, but Luke's experience, experience is a time dilation of 700.8 days. Mm. Therefore, there's a net 1.75-year difference between their f- physical age. Um, I'm still not sure it's physical or chronological, but that brings me... And, and they, they also looked at... Um, Gravitational time dilation as well, which I also don't understand, but it's but depends how close to a big gravitational body you are, rather than the speed of light, and that was negligible. So they're still two and a half years in age apart. Um, um, there's, um, as you know, one of my um, hobbies is epigenetics, and there's very few epigenetic biomarkers that you can tell from a blood sample from what someone's been exposed to or is likely to get. One of the three. Uh, so there's smoking, stress, and the other is age. <laughs> we can tell your anybody's biological age by looking at a handful of um, epigenetic marks in a handful of genes, and this is accurate to two to three years. <laughs> and it's found that healthier people have a their their biological age is younger than their chronological age. Right. So that you feel younger than yeah, mm. most people out there will feel younger or older or the same age. Mm. Um, so, of course, I want to conduct the ultimate experiment to get a, a blood or other tissue sample from these unfortunately fictional <laughs> characters. <laughs> Could be a challenge. In a galaxy far, far away. But it just <laughs> it just goes to show, I mean, what's Shane, what do you think? Do you think that would have affected their biological or chronological well, age? Well, look, I think this, this is one of those things where... Um, uh, first of all, in, let me just 
put it out there in Star Wars, they use hyperspace. So the yeah. whole speed of light thing is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Second of all, to the physicists doing this at Leicester University, was yeah. it? Yeah, take your head out of your ass and do some real work. <laughs> Um, because, you know, this is just bullshit. And it actually, I have to say, it's actually not good for promoting science. I mean, oh. Interstellar is a film where they had a real crack mm. at actually showing the sort of effects you get from mm. large gravitational yeah. bodies. One way to think, I'm not going to explain the special relativity thing around um, the twin paradox and all that, because that's a half-hour segment. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. But what I will tell you is that when you are, and you mentioned this, in, in general relativity terms, when you are closer to a a large gravitational body or even the Earth, for mm-hmm. example, um, your clock, so you, if you've got a little clock that yeah. ticks away, a standardised clock, it, talk, uh, it clicks away slower than clocks that are further away. So, mm-hmm. for example, if I have a clock and you're in orbit and you have a clock, my clock will tick a little slower than yours. Uh-huh. Now, we we actually can prove this with satellites and so forth, This and radioactive ah. um, you know, atoms that uh, decay at a certain predictable rate. We mm. can prove that this oh. is true. And in the film Interstellar, if you've seen it, you'll remember that um, the main guy who was very close to this black hole, mm. he he experienced time normally himself, but everyone back on Earth, you know, years, tens, decades had gone mm. by. So his mm. clock was ticking slow oh. compared to the people who were away from Even that now. big gravitational source. Theirs mm. was ticking ah. much faster. So that's that's sort of a, a relatively simple yeah. thing to get your head around. The twins mm. paradox one is a lot harder um, and takes a long time mm. to explain. But, I mean, these these... These effects aren't fictitious in themselves. They mm. are real. Mm. They are demonstrated. In fact, even the number of particles that get to us from outer space, mm. um, you know, radioactive particles mm. and things and um, from the sun and so forth, um, we, we get a different number of them than you would expect mm. based on how long they should survive, mm. and that's because our clocks run a bit slower. Yeah. So as they get closer to the surface of the Earth, they actually they live a bit longer effectively. Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting it's an interesting balance between mm. things. But special relativity is about, you know, travelling at a constant velocity. You know, you, you travel away from me at a constant velocity and and you look at me and you think I'm travelling away. Ah. And I look at you and I think you're travelling away. And our clocks are, are different yeah. as a result mm. of these these effects. I've got a quick question that I've always had since since I had my first science class. If I am on a, a ship, a rocket, travelling at the speed of light, and I shoot a gun in the direction I'm going, what on earth happens? If mm. nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, mm. what happens to the bullet from the gun? So the answer to your question is that your question's not valid. It's uh, like asking me what green smells like. So, and again, this is a long, a much longer discussion to explain why that's the case. But Mm. the question itself is invalid. I mean, the one I usually get is, I'm in my car traveling at the speed of light, and I turn the headlights on. Mm. What happens? Mm. Mm. Hang on. (laughs) But the question itself Ah, is invalid. It doesn't. It doesn't really make sense to ask that Mm. question. So, anyway, we'll do a long segment at some (laughs) stage on special relativity. But it's a half hour discussion. I mean, I wanted to just quickly mention that um, one of our uh, guests from this year, Amy uh, Shearer. Title, who's a embedded journalist with NASA who did yeah. the Pluto in the Minute um, thing, kind of shamed me into reading 
The Martian by Andy Weir before oh. seeing the film. I was just going to turn up, you know, to the cinema and watch it. <laughs> but I read it, and I have to say, this is sort of a mini review, folks, but mm. um, this was one of the best books I've read. I mm. absolutely loved it, mm. and I could not put it down. I, I turned this around about a week, which with two kids and a job is, you know, pretty good going. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I was reading it whenever, you know, oh, not, not quite in the bathroom, but, the bathroom. you know, it was whenever like I had a moment. What do you mean you don't read in, I was, read in the bathroom? No, I like to get in, get <laughs> in, in, the bath, out, in, get in and out quick. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, sorry, your term of bathroom, my term, I mean, two different uh, okay. things oh, there. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean both of those things. Yeah. <laughs> so, too much information. Um, but it, it is a great book, and the, the science in it and the level of detail gone into it oh. is quite extraordinary. Wow. Mm. And just understanding how biological processes work on Earth and so forth and mm. how they are translated to a Martian environment mm. is spectacular. Understanding what it's like to be in a, a gravitational environment mm. that is so much weaker than yeah. our own is amazing. Understanding what it's like to be in an atmosphere that's one-ninth of our pressure mm. um, is amazing. Un- understanding, you know, how much oxygen our, our lungs actually need to take. Mm-hmm. Ah. You know, I mean, one of the things that I've, I've always sort of never really put my head around was you can give someone mouth-to-mouth. Mm. Well, hang on, don't we breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon <laughs> dioxide? Mm. Well, of course, no, we don't. We breathe in mainly nitrogen and oxygen, mm-hmm. and we breathe out mainly nitrogen and oxygen and a little bit of CO2. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because we actually don't use much of the oxygen that we mm. breathe in. Yeah. So it's quite possible, you know, quite readily easy mm-hmm. for us to actually put that same volume of yep. gas into another human being and they can get more than enough oxygen out of what we haven't used. Wow. Mm. So those sort, all of those sorts of things were really well explained in this book mm. and, um, and it was it was a, an adventure ride all the way through, and I'm dying to see the film. I was going to say, yeah. how does the film measure up? But yeah. They, they no, hardly well, ever do, do they? I, I think, look, from what from what I hear, the film um, is really quite well done and, and follows the book quite closely, and the book, the book is detailed. I mean, there is a lot of detail in there. People with a science background will probably get more out of it, but I think the... Even those who just love a bit of science and, yeah. and so forth, it's well explained, it's well put together and, and a lot of fun. So uh, well worth the read. I highly recommend it. It's rare that I go and buy a book. Mm-hmm. I get a lot of books given to me here at the station. Mm-hmm. So I, it's rare that I go and buy a book. I was shamed into this, but um, <laughs> thank you, Amy Shiratidal, for shaming me because it was a thoroughly enjoyable book. So I highly recommend it. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. We're talking uh, science fiction here during the break. Uh, as mm-hmm. Dr. Kramer looked up the dates of all the Star Wars uh, films. Doc- <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, and also... Uh, Reminded, uh, reminded the crew and of course the whole audience that Doctor Who is coming back tonight. He is. This, this. Sorry to take up twenty seconds of time, but this Doctor Who must be the best <laughs> because it's the only Doctor Who that my wife, who is a non-science fiction fan, likes. She said he's just the angriness. Works, <laughs> works, the angriness. works with her. So stupid question though. So you're saying when he comes back, this is the TV show is yes. restarting. Yes. Okay. The TV. Yeah, not him coming back. I'm like, he, hang on, yeah. this has just got a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they wait. It's like. At this time of year, every year, uh, or even every two years, and then they feed as a small number of episodes. Yeah, so I found because I was a Star Trek watcher, and they tend not to watch Doctor Who. I think that's what I found. But uh. so, good luck to you and your Doctor Who friends. <laughs> <laughs> a technical word is Whovians. So Whovians. Oh, hi sorry. to all those Whovians out there. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Live in your phone booths. Um, 
Okay, we have a guest in the studio, Roger Pocock. Uh, Dr. Roger Pocock is uh, Head of Neuronal Development and Plasticity Laboratory in the Department of Anatomy and Developmental Biology at Monash University. Welcome, Roger. Good morning, Shane. Good to be here. Look, uh, you have um, come along because you're one of the people who's won one of the Vesky Fellowships this year. I mean, tell us first, what does that give you in terms of um, your research? Well, the Vesky Fellowship was a fantastic opportunity for me uh, when I first arrived in Victoria. So it's mm-hmm. a, it's a way of supporting new researchers that are entering Victoria, either from other states in Australia or from um, other countries, as I did. I came down from Denmark. Mm-hmm. And it's worth supporting both financially, but also with regards to networks too. So they gave us some, some funding to help with, with our research hmm. initiatives, but also uh, it's, you're part of a family in, in Vesky, right. whereby you have all these great uh, connections, whether it's in industry or governmental or academic, which really helps nurture you when you first arrive in, in the country. And obviously I'm very new to Australia, not really very well known yet. Um, so it's a really great opportunity to, to get to know some people in Victoria and also in the wider community. Hmm. Well, you'll be well known after this program. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> we have about five people like our parents listen and um, oh, a couple of Jeff's friends listen. Now, you work on uh, neurons primarily. Yes. And one of the things that I wasn't aware of is that there are all these different n- neural types, these neurons formed. Tell us, I mean, do they start off that way or how, how do you get different types of, of neurons? Do they just grow into different types? Or yeah, that's a, very, that's a very good question, obviously. So I work on, on, on a worm, mm-hmm. on a microscopic worm called Cenorhabditis elegans, which is a re- really great system to study neural specification, mainly because it's uh, small. Mm-hmm. So the human brain has 100 billion neurons, right. and the worm that I work on has 302. Okay. Um, we know... Exactly 302. Exactly 302. No, no, matter, how, no, no matter how big the worm is? It's, the, it's the, always 302. The worms are always the same size, um, wow. and they have... Cool. The interesting thing is they have 20,000 genes, which is around the same number that we have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but... And they have 959 cells, okay. precisely. Wow. Uh, and a third of those cells are neurons. Wow. And the neurons that you find in this, in this system are very similar to the, worm, the neurons that you find in humans. So we have serotonergic neurons, for example, dopaminergic neurons, all these different neuronal types that, mm. that, that produce certain um, neurotransmitters that afford them a particular function. So they're a third brain. Is that what you're That's telling right. me? That's right. A third right. brain. Mm-hmm. So if you cut a worm in half, I mean, you know, every kid's <laughs> wondered this. But if you cut a worm in half, does it still... It work? No, so, <laughs> unfortunately not. So the worm that I work on is not segmented. So there are some okay. wor- some worms that you're able to do that uh, with. So right. my worms don't do. They twitch a little bit if you cut them in half, but they don't last very long. <laughs> That's always how I remember. I've never tried it, but you know, every now and then when you're out in the garden and you, you know, right. things happen with the shovel. Right. But the cool thing is that so we know. Um, so there are these 302 neurons, and we mm. know what neurotransmitters they make. Yep. Okay, so that's that's really what specifies a particular neuron, the neurotransmitter it makes, and that affords a particular function. Okay. So what we can do, we can identify genes that control how each of these neurons is generated. So they all have the same DNA, right? So they mm-hmm. all have the same genes. So what controls... Uh, how these genes uh, regulate the specification of certain neurons. Okay. Uh, so, for example, if you want to understand how dopaminergic neurons are specified, uh, which is very important, actually. So in Parkinson's disease, for example, uh, you lose dopaminergic neurons. So what some labs in, in my field are trying to do is understand how these dopaminergic neurons are generated, mm. which may enable us at some point to be able to reprogram 
other neurons into dopaminergic neurons to help help with therapeutic avenues there. Now, when we talk about the number of neurons in the type, I mean, mm. at some stage in the evolution of this worm, mm. uh, the external environment has had influence and probably still does on, you know, getting to that point, getting to that particular number of neurons and that particular distribution of types throughout the worm's body. What happens at the moment in terms of the environmental interplay and the production, as you say, of the neurons? I mean, the, the genetics are one thing, but is there also a interplay with the environment the worms find themselves in? So actually during development, no. Mm-hmm. So it's purely genetic. Okay. Uh, and we've identified many genes that control mm-hmm. the specification of all of these neurons. So you have a neuron that have a specific um, fate, mm-hmm. so a specific function. Okay. And we know that, and we know what the genes that control that. But more and more nowadays, we're, trying, we're understanding how they can uh, modify their function depending on what stimuli they receive from the external environment. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I was working on these uh, specific neurons called serotonergic neurons in, in the worm uh, uh, maybe well, eight years ago now, actually. Uh, and we, th- there are only six of them in the worm. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have hundreds of thousands in humans, but there are only six of yep. them in the worm. We know what they do. Um, but what I found was when you stress the animals, and the way I stressed them was to give them a low oxygen environment, so I basically mm-hmm. put them on top of a mountain. Not literally, but... <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Good field trip, though. That's exactly right. I should have that. So when you, when you put them in low oxygen conditions, two other neurons now become serotonergic. So they produce mm-hmm. serotonin. So now instead of the six, now you have eight, and you think, oh, so what? You know, but we have these two extra neurons. What that actually afforded these worms to do was they're now um, hypersensitive to their environment, which means they're able to sense their environment uh, much more acutely. Mm-hmm. And we think the reason that they do this is to enable them to find better conditions more quickly. Mm-hmm. So they're in low oxygen oh. conditions, which are not suitable mm-hmm. for reproductive growth, for example. So then they were able to find uh, better conditions much more quickly mm-hmm. by expressing this is a smarter, serotonin. A smarter worm has been yes, created. Exactly. Yeah, did, right. did they go, when you took them out of that environment, mm-hmm. did those neurons go back? That's right. So then they, once, once you left them for a few hours outside mm. of that environment, then they went back to their pre- previous fate, which was not serotonergic. Mm-hmm. Right. It's fascinating. Epigenetics, anyone? Um, <laughs> um, so I've got a gut feeling. And the reason why I have a gut feeling is because my gut has a nervous system to it. Mm-hmm. Um, do, um, does the elegant worm that you work on have a gut nervous system as well as the brain in inverted commas, or is it something completely different? Um, it's actually something completely different uh, as far as we know. One thing I would like to say is that every day we're finding new cool stuff. Mm. And just because we don't haven't identified such mm. a nervous system as yet doesn't mean there isn't one. Mm. Interesting. So you were saying before that the, you know, the neurons obviously change type when it comes back into a different environment. How do you actually measure that? Do you have to do sort of histology or is there some way that you can identify the different types of neurons? Yeah, we have a variety of different ways. Mm. Uh, we use a jellyfish protein called green fluorescent protein mm. uh, that we can uh, produce in certain neuronal subtypes and that tells us this is that particular subtype and then we can look in certain conditions to see whether this this gfp or green fluorescent protein is turned on mm-hmm. in additional neurons what we also do is immunohistochemistry mm-hmm. and with the experiments i was talking about earlier we were performing anti-serotonin staining so actually looking at endogenous serotonin levels mm. in the worm in, in specific neurons fantastic one of the things uh, roger i i guess this leads us into is this idea of brain plasticity and mm. you know you're talking about the 
these brains essentially of, yeah. of, of the worms modifying their activity and modifying, um, well, in fact, what the individual neurons actually do mm-hmm. as a result of their external environment. H- how does that link with this sort of common term we hear, which is often related to people who've had stroke or physical injury and how their brains have rewired themselves? Is it the same process? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, when, when you provide a stress to a nervous system it has to com- combat that in some way right mm. and modify mm. itself obviously in the human brain it's, it's, it's much more complex than the system i'm working on uh which is one advantage of what why i'm doing using the, the worm because it's much simpler mm. Mm. uh but i think there are very nice parallels that have been shown over the past few years um with regards to uh, commonalities between the organisms mm. so subsequent to my work it was shown in in, in higher vertebrates for example that very similar uh, mechanisms regulate serotonin specification uh, due to hypoxia in zebrafish, for example. So it seems like there are, there are commonalities here. Hmm. Do, do you think um, the, the, the studies you're doing on worms will sort of hopefully lead to ways to deal with some of the, the major degenerative sort of diseases in, in the human brain? Or, or is that sort of too, too, too far along the evolutionary pathway? Or? No, I don't think so. I think it's a very valid system. Otherwise, I wouldn't be working on it. Mm, I yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think... We're probably you know ten fifteen years away from therapy is the work yeah, that I'm doing, yeah, sure. but obviously mm. you need to do the groundwork before mm. you can design a drug. Mm. Well, it's very interesting, Roger. Thanks so much for for coming in and talking to us, and uh, good luck with uh, the continued work. Welcome to Australia, of Lovely. course, and Thank uh, you so no much. doubt you'll find you know, it's a sunny, it's a good day. Yeah, you've just come through a winter, so <laughs> <laughs> we have a, we have a long summer coming up. Uh, be prepared for that. Um, Roger Pocock from uh, who is the head of neuronal development and plasticity laboratory in the Department of Anatomy and developmental biology at Monash University. Thanks for being here yesterday. Thanks so much. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We have our second guest in the studio now. His name is Richard Sandberg. He's the Chair of Computational Mechanics in the Department of Mechanical Engineering in the School of Engineering at the University of Melbourne and also is a Vesky Innovation Fellow here in Victoria. Welcome, Richard. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. It's our pleasure. Now, you've, you've uh, started off, you were born in Finland, you moved to Germany, you headed over to Southampton in the UK, and you've ended up finally in Australia. <laughs> That's well, right. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, you know, it takes a while sometimes, but people get here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you noticed we're not all penal commas? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's actually, it's so, to, to international visitors, it's a great joke to tell at, um, at customs. You know, just when they look at you, say, do, "Do I still have to have a criminal record to get here?" <laughs> friend of mine from Britain used that joke once, and it did not go down well. Uh, now, Richard, let's talk about your research. You work in particular in the area of simulating flow and noise problems. Um, I guess one way for us to discuss this is around the issue of turbulence. That's How right. do you go about simulating turbulence in in a, in a way that sort of makes sense? Because turbulence seems to be a bit chaotic. Absolutely, and and there's different ways of simulating turbulence. Um, in, in industry, for example, they use models um, mm-hmm. because simply they can't simulate all the details of turbulence. So turbulence right. has a lot of different scales. You've got eddies of different sizes and different speeds. And, and uh, if you want to resolve them all by simulation, it becomes inc- incredibly expensive. Hmm. So the best thing is to to take a model that kind of models the effect of all these scales and gets you the mean result that you want. Hmm. Um, but this is not what we do. We try to resolve it all. Um, okay. and, and for that, we need big computers because it's a big simulation and, and you have to have 
billions of grid points in order to um, resolve all these scales. So let's talk about something like a, something we know well, like an aircraft. And, yeah. and you're flying along. And, and so what's happening normally before it gets bumpy? Well, so, so I guess the turbulence you're referring to is the atmospheric turbulence. So, mm. so when you have um, different weather systems, they will generate um, swirls of, of air. And, and if, if you have a, a draft of air going up or down, if your aircraft flies into it, it it'll kind of all of a sudden drop by a few mm. meters. And that, okay. that feels a bit uncomfortable. Yep. Um, the kids will say, hey, and, and everybody else will say, oh, I don't feel very well. Right. Um, <laughs> but you get this sort of, the same sort of effect in things like pipes and all sorts of things, don't you? I mean, this is where it's more problematic. Uh, absolutely. And then, I mean, we have flow everywhere i mean yeah. we have blood circulating through our mm, body and, yeah. and you know that, that is kind of eddying around uh, we, we have flow in pipes we have flow in sinks when we mix our milk in the coffee that's turbulence mm -hmm. um and, and of course in a more engineering perspective uh, we, we we in particular look at aircraft engines and and, yep. and that's where we want to understand the, the turbulence as good as we can because then we can improve the engines and make them more efficient mm. so so the goal there presumably is to have the is it called laminar flow i'm remembering some undergraduate science that i once did that is and that's where essentially the air would follow the, the lines of the aircraft or, or the engine yeah. in a controlled way. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So, so laminar flow is you have no disturbances really in it. It's mm. really nice and smooth and, and that gives you less drag. But sometimes you actually need turbulence as well. Okay. As I said, for mixing, if, if you have a combustion process in, in the engine, mm -hmm. uh, you want to mix your fuel as good as you can so that it combusts more cleanly. Um, so there you want to have turbulence. Mm. Um, but in other situations, turbulence produces more drag mm -hmm. and, and it gives you more friction force, so to say. So right. it, yep. it holds back the plane more. So, so you want to kind of avoid it. But in many cases, you can't fully avoid turbulence. So what you try to do is reduce the impact of turbulence and, and you try, sometimes try to use it to, to your benefit. Hmm. So there are, I've been on a few different planes in, mm. um, and in my time and there are some that are definitely a lot louder than others with the engine. So is that to do with turbulence? Is that the reason or is it more to do the fact that they're combustion versus other technologies? Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. So, so, I mean, turbulence also produces a lot of noise. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's a aerodynamically produced noise and, and um, in, in the last 20, 30 years, they've made a lot of progress in trying to reduce the mm. noise from engines. And, and one key thing in, in reducing noise of the engine has been to make the engines bigger. Mm. And if, if they are bigger, the flow velocity is smaller that exits the engine and then that just makes it quieter. But yeah. there, there are other technologies as well to, um, to reduce noise in, in, in aircraft. Mm. I'm just trying to get a picture of what an eddy is. When you kind of imagine like rowing a boat and when you look at where the oars have gone in, you kind of see a swirling. Is, is that a good description of an eddy? Yeah, so so that's an eddy or a vortex, you could call it. And uh, in turbulence, these uh, these vortices, they break down into smaller ones. And, and you can see a whole kind of range or cascade of different size eddies. And, and you get ah, this whole okay. range of, of different sizes. Hmm. Wow. And turbulence in some cases is very important. I, I suspect um, you'd be able to describe quite well for me why a tennis ball needs to be furry to go far. I mean, this is to do with turbulence, right? Yeah, or, or, or a golf ball. Mm, yeah, a golf ball has a dimple the dips, for, yeah. for the same yeah. reason. And mm. that, it actually is to, as I said before, turbulence sometimes can be beneficial. So mm. actually the dimples on a golf ball, uh, they make the flow turbulent earlier. So, so it transitions from the laminar state to the mm -hmm. turbulent state earlier. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that the flow can uh, stay attached to the ball for a longer distance. And when it separates, the, the wake behind the golf ball is smaller than it is if it was laminar. Okay. And, and therefore you have less ah. drag and it gives you 
a better flight. Mm. Now let's um, talk a bit about the the actual modeling because I mean how how do you how do you go about simulating this stuff? I mean if you want to actually control where these eddies are and control the the specific amount of turbulence that you're getting from an engine or, or whatever, how do you actually model that? What what process is involved? Yeah, so, so as I say, we we, we try to um, do a simulation where we where we do resolve all these scales so that we actually get a, a database where we have a full description of the flow with all the details mm-hmm. in, in space and in time and we can interrogate that database now to to try to construct models um, so I mean there's different ways of doing it um, in the past you've just basically looked at mathematical descriptions and you, yep. you've kind of expanded out the equations to kind of try to cover all, all, all these scales um, it, it, kind of in the more recent uh, past we've, we've started to look into machine learning techniques so you, you can actually use genetic algorithms to just mine the data for you wow. rather than you having mm-hmm. to use your intuition you know what are the relevant equations right. that you can extract mm-hmm. um, so so we, we do use these databases to try to to model the, the, the turbulence. Yeah. How much is this replacing the old sort of wind tunnel experiments where, you know, aircraft designers would put their aircraft in these giant contraptions and, you know, essentially have them experience high wind speeds in there? Is that still done? Yeah, it's still done. And, and I think we, we still need both because mm-hmm. the simulations are incredibly expensive still and, and we can really still only do model problems in the simulation. So if we want to resolve all these scales, as I said, we need very big supercomputers and we yep. have to use, you know, tens of thousands of CPUs to right. actually do one simulation. Right. Mm. So it's, it's, it's very hard. And, and the, 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 the higher the speed or the bigger the aircraft, the, uh, the bigger the computer needs to get. Mm. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, the higher Reynolds numbers, we call the, 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 the number that actually describes the, the, the balance or how much turbulence we have, um, the higher that number becomes, uh, we can't do that in the simulation yet. Uh, so that needs to be in a mm. tunnel. But if we do the simulation, we get more details. So, so if we use both in a complementary fashion, we, we actually think we can get the most out of it. And when you, when you talk about the different scales here, I mean, I can understand you sort of do a first-order approximation and get the basic, you know, high-level stuff. Mm. But as you, as you go deeper and deeper into the detail, is, is the physics at that point starting to uh, be different? Are you getting to a point where you have to use different equations and different approaches, or is it all the same, just a different sort of scale of modeling? No, it's, I think we know that the, the equations that we use actually describe the full problem, but it, mm-hmm. the, the problem is that the higher you go in this Reynolds number, the smaller the scales become that you right. have to resolve, and, and that just becomes very hard. Mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, the, the, the current design tools that industry uses are pretty good already, but what we want really is we want to make things even more efficient, because mm-hmm. if you have, you know, even half a percent of increased efficiency will save airlines millions of dollars mm, in, in fuel costs. Yeah. So, so even that half percent is incredibly important, but you can't get that half percent accuracy from a model that is not very good. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so that's why we're trying to improve that. Yeah, I think most people who've flown from the UK will take a percent of efficiency too. It's a long mm. bloody flight. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, it's fascinating work. I read uh, just uh, earlier this morning that the Concorde could be on the way back in. So this, this could be something very interesting to uh, see how we model such um, high-speed aircraft and yeah. so forth. Interesting stuff. Thanks so much for coming on today. Um, it's been our pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Richard Sandberg is Chair of Computational Mechanics in the Department of Mechanical Engineering in the School of Engineering at the University of Melbourne and is also a Vesky Innovation Fellow for 2015. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Great quotes from Dr. Lauren so far as I talked about Pluto, uh, Pl- Plutonium. Uh-huh. And I think the first quote was... Oh, you're going to do it, it, aren't you? It that, um, what's that one? What's, no, what was it? What was that? Do I need to Google that? I don't know. What oh, it yeah, is. I need to Google that. What is that? <laughs> and the second one was, oh, that's a rare one. Oh, like the other one, kryptonite. <laughs>
That was a joke. That I would like disclaimer. I know that that's a joke. <laughs> I think she has a PhD, folks, but I might actually be asking for proof after today. Yeah. Uh, but you did know that PTs is the chemical symbol for platinum. I did. I think yeah. that's because you shove it yeah. in people's eyes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I had to know that ah. one. Yeah, that's the only reason. Anyway, so I wanted to briefly mention to you guys about one of the uh, current issues that NASA is having with regards to plutonium-driven um, or power that mm-hmm. um, comes from their plutonium heat reactors, which are basically, you know, just the, the, the stuff decays. Mm. It gives off heat and they use that heat to generate electricity. And this is the reason why the Voyager 1 and 2 craft are still kicking on, you know, 30-something mm. years later. Um, this is why the Cassini craft around Saturn is still kicking on ah. years later. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why, you know, the New Horizons probe uh, managed to get out to um, all the way to Pluto mm-hmm. and, you know, is going even further. I mean, these craft cannot use solar power, mm. as simple as that. In fact, even if you just look at, say, say you could use solar power um, at Jupiter, Mm-hmm. Well, if you could use it at Jupiter, then to go to Saturn, which is about twice the distance from the sun as Jupiter, you need four times mm. the solar capacity yeah. to collect enough power. Mm. Just It's not it's feasible, feasible to do that sort of stuff. Um, you might say the... Um, the recent uh, Philae Comet lander, if it wasn't solar power, would mm. still be sending back data because yeah, yeah. solar panels facing the wrong way. Anyway, but there's a lot of controversy around the use of um, you so, know, plutonium. So they uh, actually, they, are they, the, you get power from the naive question, power from the decay of a radioactive material and you just hmm. shove a, a lump of it and it decays for, if I have a half-life of, of yeah, 50 so, years, it'll, it'll power the space. Yeah, so the, 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 the one that is used wow. in these craft is plutonium-238. Mm-hmm particular isotope of plutonium, it has a half-life of 87.7 years. Oh. So mm-hmm. half of it will disappear after oh. almost 90 years. So that's a, that's a fair, that's fair time. Yeah. In fact, usually a craft's, you know, other systems will die before that mm-hmm. or become, mm-hmm. you know, historically irrelevant. So how much do they have to put in onto the ship then? So here's the thing. I mean, let me just give you a few numbers because it's mm-hmm. interesting because um, this was always a byproduct of the production of um, plutonium or 239 and other, other materials used for nuclear weapons. Mm. production in the Cold War. So there was a great supply of plutonium mm. back mm. then, but NASA, um, of course, has almost used up that supply because mm. that stopped back in, you know, I don't know, 1988 or something yep. when the Cold War ended. People stopped producing nuclear weapons and that stopped. Mm. So they're down, believe it or not, to a mere um, 35 kilos. Mm. They've used a total of 140 kilos to date in all their programs. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the um, the science for Apollo was based on this as well. Mm. So um, they're down to a mere 35 kilograms. And because a lot of it's decayed since mm. it was first ah. made, um, there's actually only about 17 kilos mm. that is usable. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is how much do they use on the probe? Well, 17 kilos is enough to, to make four generators. Four. Mm. So we're talking about four missions. That's it. Four left, yeah. Um, Now, the good news is... uh, the Department of Energy in the, in the U.S. has started to make plutonium-238 again as a result of this. The bad news is Congress has moved the cost of that to NASA's budget. Mm. So it costs $50 million a year to make just 1.5 kilograms of the wow. stuff. All right, this is dear. Wow. And that $50 million now sits in NASA's budget, and mm. it sits in areas of NASA's budget that otherwise would be off there looking at you know great ways to, for example, one of the areas that's been cut is a program that works out how to use 
less plutonium in spacecraft. Oh, so, it's ironic. <laughs> it's kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah. um, so this is something that's a pretty big problem at the moment. And although NASA sort of is, you know, putting on the brave face and saying, oh, no, we're okay, everything's fine, it is something where obviously that's um, that's going to potentially curtail certain missions mm. as, as we go. Now, solar is an option that's obviously being studied fairly extensively, um, but we're not talking about the sort of solar arrays we have in their homes. These are really high-end stuff, mm. and they're large, and they're, they're heavier, and, and they won't work beyond a certain range, mm-hmm. as simple as that. So it will be interesting to watch and see whether or not we can sort of get um, get this back up and running and whether or not it will be something that... So things like mm. New Horizons will continue. And, folks, if you haven't seen it, I shared it on Facebook, but... Um, mm. The latest pictures from the New Horizons craft of, of Pluto are just extraordinary. Spectacular. Just spectacular yeah. stuff. So amazing mm. science. Unfortunately, we're out of time. It's a bit sad. Yeah. I, you know, it's my favourite hour of the week. <laughs> <laughs> it goes so quick. Um, we're going to have to leave it there, though, folks. If you do have an opportunity to do so, please try and subscribe to Triple R before the deadline of the 23rd of September. We'd really appreciate it if you haven't done already. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. I've been here with Dr. Lauren and Dr. Chrome. Liv has been doing our Twitter feed. I'm Dr. Shane, and remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.